Episode 29 of the Bowery Boys. Behold the Brooklyn Bridge. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And my name is Tom Myers. We are going to jump right into it. Or mm. right off of it, as, oh. as we say, because we need to no, get because we, we have a big one. We have probably one of our biggest podcasts of all time. Right before you, right now, ladies and gentlemen, the Bowery Boys are taking on the Brooklyn Bridge. Exactly. Now, this is a New York landmark, one of the I guess top three biggest landmarks of New York that people know about, with the Statue of top Liberty three. and oh. Statue of Liberty, Empire State Building, okay. Brooklyn Bridge. You can argue that, debate that later, but it's needless to say an icon of the New York skyline. It was built with scandal. It was built with people. People died. You know, many many people died. While and it was completed it. by an act of love. Exactly. In the course of 13 years. So we have a lot of juicy, juicy details for you coming up. We've got the story behind it. Let's cross that bridge. All right. So where, where to begin, Greg? I mean, we've got the Brooklyn Bridge before us and... Why don't you? Yes. Why don't, why don't I take over the um, duties of situating the listener? I will situate the listener. Um, the Brooklyn Bridge is located on the Manhattan side, downtown Manhattan near South Street Seaport, and on the downtown Brooklyn side um, between Dumbo and Brooklyn Heights. Okay. The bridge is five thousand nine hundred and eighty-nine feet long. It was originally called the New York and Brooklyn Bridge right. obvious for obvious reasons. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it's the two defining features are those two towers those, with those gothic cathedral designs both of which are 276 feet tall at the highest watermark. There's two anchorages on both sides one on, you know, one in Manhattan, one in Brooklyn which support the various entrances and exits like the FDR and all the other roads and And the anchorages and also hold down the wires this, that are in the cables that are suspended. Right, that's stretched along it, correct. It's one of the oldest suspension bridges in the United States, and it was the first steel suspension bridge in the world. In fact, having it made as steel was one of the first bones of contention at the beginning of the construction, So, you know, which started in 1870, and I said went all the way to 1883. So for 13 years, the Brooklyn Bridge was under construction, and quite a sight from both, both sides of the span. It was drawing people, especially because right underneath it, or right next to it, was the Fulton Ferry. Now, this brings up like why they needed the bridge. Before that, the only way to get to Brooklyn, unless you lived in Long Island, were these ferries, or right. you know, boats, of course. But I mean, if you were just a normal commuter, because a lot of people who were who lived in Brooklyn, which was at this time a separate city, as you said, would take the ferries over to New York for work. And it was, I, if I may interject, yeah. it, it could be a l very long. You wouldn't think of this today, but it could be a really long ride from from the Brooklyn side over to Manhattan. You know, in the winter through icy conditions. Well, in the winter it was especially bad, and uh, the river would freeze up. And right. also, there was if you also didn't remember, there's so much more traffic in the water because there's so many more boats. Right. So imagine rush hour. If you're listening to this podcast right now on your way into work, imagine what it would have been like on a ferry coming over trying to get to work by probably 8 o'clock in the morning. Well, at that time. Right, I mean, you can't even compare. I mean, the Staten Island Ferry is a pleasure cruise. 
news compared to what the Fulton mm-hmm. Ferry was. So, so since the, the early 1800s, people were talking about building a bridge, but they no, no idea really got off the ground, and there was no they couldn't really do it because it really was a large span, and it was also America's busiest port too. So you had if you were going to build a bridge, it had to be something that naval ships could fit underneath, yes. that all the commerce could fit underneath, and so it had to, to be really tall and re- very very long. It, exactly, and which was you know they didn't have the technology for it to really build something like that for a long time. So luckily, by the time all that came around, a master bridge builder mm. was sort of rose onto the scene, and his name was John, John Roebling. Yes, you'll be hearing a lot about a flashback again to the Astros. We have a lot of Roeblings <laughs> popping up in this podcast. These aren't that, these aren't that confusing. But, no, there's you know. John, later Washington, and later Emily. Emily but yeah. John is the father, and he was born in 1806 in Germany. From modest family, you know, he was one of these people who was a true Renaissance man. He was he studied mathematics, engineering, architecture. He even, when he was studying uh, in Germany, was a protege of the philosopher Georg Hegel. He worked for the Prussian government, building bridges and roads uh, throughout what is now Germany for three years before moving over here uh, in 1831. Once he got to the U.S., he was trained and he had been studying suspension bridges in Germany. And what did he do? Did he run off and start building bridges? No. No. He, he set about, right, to set up a sort of utopian farming community. Oh, that's right. Saxonburg, I believe, is what it's right. called. Saxon- First, it was called Germania, and then uh, Saxonburg. <laughs> a little general. Sure. Right. And lived there for six years. Mm-hmm. I think that the utopian community sort of served his Renaissance skills. He could do a little bit of everything. One of the things that he did was stumble upon, really, I mean, because he was an inventor came across a way to make wire stronger. Oh, so he, he actually w- had a hand in inventing this wire rope. Well, this right? rope, right. Because or improving he was, it, at right. least. He was working along the uh, Beaver River Canal in western Pennsylvania, and the ropes that were pulling the bridges along kept snapping. They were just made of hemp. He realized that he could twist wire around the ropes and strengthen them. And it was a sort of sensation in a rope kind of way. <laughs> That's so, I would like to see a wire ro- how wire rope is made. I, I say that now. I mean, maybe not for Saturday night. Night, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> maybe sometime. No, I mean, I think you know, in studying the Brooklyn Bridge, I mean, you can get really worked up about the wire rope situation. Get, I'm all wired up about the bridge. Mm. Well, anyway, so how did he? he so he's, but then he got started on, on building bridges. Then, I'm right? Yeah, sorry, no, I, I didn't mean to stop there. Well, let's just say that because of the wire rope, uh, he, he it raised his profile, and he started working on the suspension bridges. His reputation was building. Building to such a degree that one of his, his his dream was to build this Brooklyn Bridge. So eventually, he contacted um, a very prominent citizen in New York by the name of Abram Hewitt, who would figure into the story in and out throughout the history of the bridge. And, and when was this? Um, this would be in 1857. Okay. And he wanted to do it. So eventually, it got up to the state of New York. It got to Albany. Because they had, you know, you ha- they, this is a huge undertaking a lot of money. They have to pass a bill in order to kind of get it started. But can I ask a, a stupid question yes. here for a second? I understand why Brooklyn would want the bridge, but what was in it for Manhattan? Well, we'll see. It's not so much what was in it for Manhattan, but what was in it for some of the politicians. Well, anyway, so the bill passed up in Albany. 
So what Roebling did to sort of get people on, on board with the idea and get them really addicted to it and to, and to show that he could do it is he got a lot of prominent citizens together and basically they all took a big road trip. Oh. Uh, on, on a railroad trip, I guess. I mean, some of the people who were involved, because these names are going to come up, um, William Kingsley, right. who was actually Brooklyn's leading contractor at the at the time, and then a man named Thomas Casella, who was the, the New York editor of the Brooklyn Eagle, which was the near, was the newspaper that trumpeted the bridge for many, many, many years. Right. So he got and a lot of other people. So he got him in a train, took them up to see all of his other works. Now he had made these spectacular bridges in places like Pittsburgh, um, on the Allegheny River in upstate New York, in Cincinnati, which at the time was the world's longest suspension bridge. And then the sort of like the piece. The resistance, if you will, will. his bridge over the Niagara River, this spectacular bridge that actually had a train that could go over it, which really sold it for these people. Because on top of on top of that, the big worry, right? The big worry would be that the bridge wouldn't be able to take the load, especially of a train. And what's so specific about his bridges is they look very delicate. They're really well designed. Everyone was so sold on this. So (laughs) the whole thing was like a big old party. They convinced it. So then basically. We're not rewriting history here, are we? <laughs> no, no, no. So shoot forward a little bit later in 1869, then the U.S. government actually needs to approve it. Congress needs to approve it because it's a post road. There's, you know, federal mail will be going on this, so they need to approve it. Not to mention that it's the, you know, the naval port. The naval ships have sure. to fit underneath it. Yes. Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, who was the president at the time, signed the bill in 1869. From there, a the bridge company, the New York Bridge Company was created, and it would be a private organization running on the public's behalf, and they were given permission to buy land. They were given, I believe it was $5 million to buy land and get everything kind of off, off the ground. We're going to see in a few minutes, though, that having a private company sort of in charge of this may not have been the best way of dealing with it. This was sort of an outsourced project to build this giant bridge. It kind of was. The bridge would uh, mostly be paid for, by the way, by Brooklyn because it was perceived that Brooklyn would get the most benefits out of it, which... It's true. Um, William Kingsley, who I had just mentioned, would be in charge of the money, and he would bankroll the whole project and find private investors and everything. And of course, John Roebling was officially hired as chief engineer, and as the story goes, he built the bridge, and everything was fabulous for John Roebling, right? And he became a big star. Not quite. Uh, first of all, his salary was fixed at $8,000 a year, which I think was a pretty big <laughs> sum of money. <laughs> I'm sure, rolling in the dough. He drew up these plans, so he he did design the bridge. Mm-hmm. He sold everybody on it. He estimated that 40 million people would cross the bridge every year. 40 million, right? Yeah. yeah would you say that's about what it is today? I would say if not even more. Yeah, it's 150 more. Oh, okay. He <laughs> grossly <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> underestimated the popularity and I guess the need of this bridge. In his original designs, if you look at them today, because he was such a master draftsman, mm-hmm. the two outer lanes would be for horse-drawn carriages the middle two lanes would be for cable cars that were going in both directions because he was building cable car terminals on the Brooklyn side and on the Manhattan side. So if you didn't want... Well, hold on a second. And then the middle would be... (laughs) I'm getting ahead of myself. Would be an elevated... Uh, walkway oh, of course. for pedestrians, which was unheard of at the time, right. for a bridge like to this. have 
to have this space 18 feet mm-hmm. above the, the road, he said, because, you know, in a crowded commercial city, such, such a promenade will be of incalculable value. And thank and goodness he built it. You thank, know? Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. I, he probably didn't forecast the bicycles also that would be going across. <laughs> but John didn't get to really see any of this, did he? No, he didn't, um, actually, because there was an accident just after it was signed off by the president and the U.S. Corps of Engineers in 1869. He was standing unfortunately, in one of the ferry landings, uh, when a ferry came in, knocked over a big pile, which fell and crushed his leg. And the true tragedy of the story is mm-hmm. that his toes had to be amputated. Ouch. But uh, unfortunately, gangrene set in, and he died. That's, I'm, I mean, like, in the bridge hadn't even been started. It had just been surveyed, basically, correct? Tragedy. Luckily uh-huh. for all of us, his son Washington had been studying suspension oh, yes. bridges, was an engineer himself, and was ready to take on the project. Well, Washington, I mean, Washington basically is as great a man as his father, but there was a time when people didn't know if this could go on under him. He was 31 years old when he became chief engineer of the bridge. Now, he had gotten his education being born here in America at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute up in Troy in upstate. He assisted his father in bridge building even at a young age. In 1861, Mm. he was enlisted, or rather some say his father would push him, into signing up to join the Union Army. During his campaigns, and he was was in the Battle of Gettysburg, he did a lot. He was really, he was a great soldier. During one of the campaigns, he actually met the sister of one of his generals named Emily Warren. Both fell in love. They got married. The family loved her. She went up to visit them while he was still fighting, and they had these really passionate love letters. They're great. Wow. Read. Have you read them? Well, yes. I just flipped through them all. I mean, like, you know, naughty. Le- no, no. I, you know, I read excerpts of them. They're actually very passionate and beautiful. Wow. After the war, um, they both went to Europe. And while he was there, he learned a lot more about the modern bridge building, and he learned about, which we're about to talk about, caisson design, right. which was how to like, like really plant these into the river. So when he got back, he started you know, working with his father, and that's when his father died, so he took over. Now, he was assigned his first major task, and this is where it could have just all gone downhill, or sunk as we mm-hmm. as we're about to say um these caissons needed to be no uh, no it's, it's a little confusing yeah. but i'll try to do my simplistic if anyone out there knows engineering please uh, i apologize this isn't like the best way to do we're it we're really just trying to break it down so a caisson, caissons for dummies caisson is it's a french for chest correct uh, sure. It's, it's a t- <laughs> These are the most crucial element. It would root the two towers into the earth. I, all I can basically say is if you take a glass and a full sink, turn it oh. upside down, and, and push it all the way down, as long as you don't overturn the glass, it's going to have this trapped air. Right. Now, imagine- we remember this from physics class, yes. that the air pressure will stay inside the yes. glass and go all the way down to the Now, floor. if you... If the, if, let's say a lot of little men then came, walked into it through a little tube on the top and went to the bottom of the sink and they started digging out this bottom of the sink. As long as the air was trapped inside, the caisson would then sink below the sink level the sink. or, as we're about to talk about, <laughs> the riverbed. Right. So that 
so and so instead and of this the, was a this was a totally revolutionary technique that they this could, was as a matter of fact it was only it was this was only the second time it was being tried in the United States it was being tried also on a bridge in St. Louis. What I think is incredible too about the caissons is that once they went down to the the, the riverbed the the floor of the river and then the, the digging started underneath they would ship the stuff up through a tube whatever they were digging up. Correct. There was another shaft and the crane came down and they pulled up the stuff pulled right. it up and the guy would just keep digging down there and the caisson would actually move lower and lower and lower beneath the riverbed level yes and then at the end they would actually fill it in with cement and the caisson would become the foundation of the tower that's correct now and it's it's each caisson was the size of four tennis courts and just the idea of having to they built them in greenpoint or at a a yard in greenpoint and then they had to float them right onto the water and down to the exact space where they needed them and that's when they could begin to sink them into the riverbed and the first one took it was sunk in may of 1870 this was on the brooklyn side on the brooklyn side this was absolutely time consuming work and it was awful because they would you know they had very cheap laborers often immigrants sometimes they'd work at the beginning to 10 hours a day in really dark hot temperatures where it was almost like a mine it was you know going into sure. a mine and just digging stuff up and then and it was sort of eerie down there right i mean you you couldn't really see very well they had some weird lights yeah they, i mean they couldn't have you couldn't have like electric lights for instance down there i mean they didn't they didn't have that yet right. so it was it was a very almost like sinister scary place to, to go to work sometimes especially when the men started getting what they called at first the caisson disease um, where workers began reporting cramps they got headaches some of them even had paralysis most of this happened after they left the caisson it it eventually crippled a lot of people um later uh in the new york caisson which would be uh pushed out into the water and sunk um, a couple years later people would even die from this, Roebling hired a, doc- a and doctor. And they didn't know what was causing it. They didn't know. Well, they had they hired a doctor who would actually come to St. Louis because this was happening there in their caissons. He came up with some with some solutions and in- involving like kind of decompressing on the way up. And because we should note that you had to get into a pressurized chamber before you would go down. On the on the way out, what Doctor Smith recommended is a little bit of decompression. Unfortunately, he didn't go far enough. Like the decompression process would only be a few minutes when it really needed to be much much longer. This was, of course, we're talking about the bends, what we call it today. Part of the problem is we don't really know how many men really suffered from the bends because a lot of them wanted to come back to work because they really needed the the work. Sometimes they would work through the pain. So unfortunately, our greatest victim of the bends would be poor Washington Roebling himself. He started getting them in the Brooklyn caisson, almost to the point of paralysis. He felt a little bit better, went back into the New York caisson while they were working on that one. And that's when like, he almost died. Well, and the New York caisson, too, proved to be a lot more challenging than the Brooklyn one because of the different layers of, uh, I guess, cement gravel. And well, on the, right. Well, on the, they dug deeper. Correct. In the, more... On the Brooklyn one, they were able to settle it on bedrock, which is kind of what they wanted to do. On right. the New York one, however, they kept digging and they kept digging. And they were still many, many feet from bedrock. They were still digging, and they were at one point digging in sand. They were, I mean, they had to go through boulders, Boil- all sorts of different boiling things. Boiling quicksand. <laughs> oh, yes, all yeah. sorts of different things. It's um, amazing to know what's underneath the river. The New York caisson is sitting in sand. He stopped it in sand because he thought it would be strong enough. And I, I mean, he's right. It's, it's been still standing. But it is interesting to know that on the New York side, the Brooklyn Bridge is on a foundation of sand. Now, 
On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Now, so when Washington came down with the Benz, was it was he done then? No, he, he well he wasn't. Here's the funny thing is he basically left the scene. He didn't really go back to working directly on the bridge um, at all. But he would for three years he basically went to Trenton, New Jersey. Okay. And for three years. But then he would come back and he would live um, in his home on Brooklyn Heights and he would look out the window as the story goes. Right, right um, there on Columbia Heights, I looking think. At looking at his binoculars over. and yeah. looking at looking out at everything. He was still very detail oriented. It was almost like he was on the job, but a big help was having Emily there. And Emily Enter Emily Roblin. Emily transcribed basically every note and would be his eyes and ears of Washington for the whole time. Eventually she would take control of things herself. She was extremely resourceful. As a matter of fact, sometimes even some of these contractors would address like they wouldn't even they would address her like in, in mm. correspondence and things like she really was she did take control of it a lot of accounts a little bit later of course would recognize john and washington and wouldn't recognize her because she was a woman but she really did contribute herself now we've talked about the caissons but the the really the glamorous part the wow part where people really st- stood up and took notice is when the towers came up correct well yeah and the towers actually it seems like the story of the towers going up is so simple compared mm-hmm. to the story of the caissons. The caissons took years to so go they down. They certainly did. And the towers actually would take five years to build, and they were completed in 1876 in that elegant, you know, simple and gothic style. Then some architecture critics would mock later for being a little too simple. But those were John's original designs, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, they were. So you have just, if, if we can think about what makes up the bridge a second, because the caissons were the foundation of the towers, uh-huh. but there's more to it than just those towers. There are the anchorages. So there is an anchorage on the Brooklyn side and on the Manhattan side. From the anchorage, you would then build the road that would go mm-hmm. through the tower and the spans across from one tower to another that would then go through to the other anchorage. The suspension cables would be anchored inside the anchorage, hence the name, <laughs> and would be sort of tied underneath giant plates that are buried you know, sure. inside that anchorage and hidden from the weather and, and from vandals. And th- those cables then would go up 
and above the anchorage and up to the tower and right. then swoop down to the other tower. And from and there, then, the suspender wires then were attached. Right. The suspension wires would come down and actually hold up the roadway that would gotcha. be going across. Now, these anchorages were huge themselves, so we don't really look massive. at those. because they're Massive. And, and they're, they're kind of hidden today because of all of the business with the FDR Drive and also the BQE on the Brooklyn side. Well, on the Manhattan side, they were kind of thrilled to have this anchorage because the anchorage sits in what used to be called the Fourth Ward, one of the slimiest, most debauched neighborhoods. Right. And so this gave them the opportunity to right kind of down rip by five that. points. Um. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ish. Close by. Close by. Actually. Yeah. You, you know, a hop, skip, and a robbery away from it. I guess. <laughs> uh, but I uh, kind of right on the waterfront. So they were happy to see that go. So the anchorage on the on the Manhattan side also had a terminal above it for the train, like we just said. As did the Brooklyn side have a terminal. It was a really nice, straight, linear, beautiful, elegant affair. Now, didn't they have a a little wooden walk? With how did they string up that cable up at the top? Well, and how you did know, they get to I, the, I the, kind the suspender? Of, when the wire was strung, it took forever because the wire, the cables for the bridge are actually made of many, many strands of wire. Okay, so. Uh-huh. So there were like years during which this process was was going on. In the meantime, yes. the towers were built. Uh-huh. They were all finished. Right. Ready to but go. But they couldn't build the walkway. So there's no there is no road connecting the, the anchorage. But we would know that sort of like the level road. Yeah. Where we walk exist. or we take a cab or they, whatever. So how did they get to the top of the towers then? Well, so they built a walkway that was just like what, what was it, five feet wide or something like that? It wasn't very long, right? No, it was, it was, was just a, like one of these ropes, it, it, these rope bridges that you would see out in Indiana the Jones country or something. Yeah. Exactly. And it went from the anchorage. Now listen, dear listener. It goes from the anchorage, not along what would be, say, the walkway today or the road today. It went to the top of the tower. <laughs> and then from one tower, it went to the next tower. People so so could, a bridge, it was like a bridge from the like, top of the tower, the top of the tower. Wow. Even more terrifying, Greg. It was like a bridge from the ground to the top of the tower. <laughs> To the other top. To the to other the top ground. of the other tower, to the to the ground. So people would pay for this. And f- for years, this was open actually to the public eventually, well, and the- then closed as a public, you know, a, a sort of tourist trap. You could pay to get a ticket, and you would walk. Imagine walking up to the top of the tower of the Brooklyn Bridge. I mean, it's That's still remarkable. something to give you well, nightmares. The, the, first, the first man who actually went across it, his name was E.F. Farrington. Okay. And he, what he wanted to do is he just wanted to show his workers that it was okay. You could get on it, and it's fine. You won't fall off You'll, as long as you just hold on. So this little swing and went went over so many people because I mean he was he's basically the first person to cross the right. Brooklyn Bridge and if I may he didn't actually walk across the roadway he just went across the first cable that yes connected he had the a two swing towers. that went across it right he had like a little swing with a little seat and you know he had a little bit of a, a flair of the dramatic at one point he stood up and it was waving at people by the time he came back down on the Manhattan side there was such a throng of people that he had to escape into a building because people wanted to like lift him up on their shoulders because uh, those were the days because of this the, just the sim- symbolism right. of having this like he was the first person yeah, to c- cross amazing. this bridge and we- I should say probably the last person to cross the the bridge that you could walk across was a man who unfortunately halfway across had an epileptic seizure. <laughs> 
Right. And the workers had to race out onto the bridge and tie him down to it until the seizure was over. So you can imagine, I mean, it would be terrifying enough today to have a seizure walking across the Brooklyn Bridge, much less <laughs> on this on a little, little wooden, yes, little wooden bridge that's yes. above it. Okay, well, so we, I think we, we've got the wooden bridge down. Well, we've been talking about all the sort of nice, fun things. I think I need to start rattling off some of the scandals that happened because there were quite a few, and I'm sure you have some yourself that I, I, I maybe I don't even know about. The first big one to me, because of course it stars like this icon of New York evil, if you will, evil. I will. Boss Tweed, of course, was the head of Tammany Hall, the Democratic Party in New York City. Basically controlled everything and controlled it through um, coercion, corruption, bribery. He, um, ra- he ran the political corruption. Well, well, but the problem is he got things done. You could not build this bridge to New York without him. So William Kingsley, who we had, who had just spoken about, basically spirited away about 55000 to $65,000 in a carpet bag over to Tweed just to get him to say okay or just to get or get the wheels in motion basically on the New York City because side. he could get it through City Hall correct now you know on top of that Tweed and a lot of his cronies became primary shareholders in the bridge company mm. getting an 80% discount per per stock okay so this is a public bridge but he they're making money hand over fist but this this whole racket got blew out of you know got blown out in 1872 when Tweed during was the indicted. reform as well the reform, yes Tweed was indicted and during his testimony some, is when some of this came out so as a result of this in 1874 the cities of New York and Brooklyn decided well we need to kind of see what's going on a little bit more here so they be, they became involved so the cities are getting involved with the budget too where where are we on the budget for this bridge well by 1878 that's eight years into the bridge right they had reached 13.5 million dollars that was the limits okay right. and they were way f- far from being because john roebling himself had said that it he had budgeted the the, the bridge at 4.5 million so now they're at thirteen point yes. five million. So and New York kind of got fed up, and they stopped paying. Like mm. they stopped p- putting money into it, into the war, into the chest. So they they all ran short of money. Construction actually halted for for several months, for like six months. Could you imagine half a bridge? That's exactly what happened. Half a bridge was standing Incredible. in the middle of the East East River. No work was being done on it. Eventually, Brooklyn did sue New York for this money, and so they did have to cough it up. And so we were back to normal. I mean, obviously, the bridge is built, so it's but, obviously <laughs> to get paid for. But that's not even, like, the biggest scandal. Well, I do know a little bit. Are you getting into the wire scandal? This, the wire scandal. The wire to me, scandal. This, this is, is the real wire. This, to me, is unbelievable. Yes. That, listeners, do you know <laughs> that the Brooklyn Bridge is partially made out of defective wire? But before you get nervous... The wire ends up being okay in the end, but let's just say that the they had to you know reach out to the lowest bidder to get wire. Even though we should say that Roblin, uh, John Roblin, had created a wire manufacturing company, Correct. which he was making lots of money off of in Trenton, New Jersey, or his family was making lots of money off of, and they didn't get the contract because of a conflict of interest. So right. it went to the lowest bidder, which was a man named J. Lloyd Hay. Hay. H- Hey, H-A-I-G-H. Now, he is a total snake oil salesman. I mean, I th- this guy is unbelievable. If you look at some of his backstory, he's, he was convicted 
more than once of polygamy. Wow, that's another podcast. <laughs> he was kind of crazy, and he was he was no he was sort of known as being a little shifty. So he put in the lowest bid to provide the wire that would be twisted into the cable because the cables are made up of lots and lots and lots of twisted wires. And it turns out that, long story short, the wire was defective. It would get rejected by the inspectors. He would haul it off that rejected wire, and then. <laughs> It would be the old switcheroo. So, like, they would carry the wire there, and then on the way, it would be substituted (laughs) with the inferior wire. And I guess that they would take that the strong wire and then take it back to get retested. And it was like three card Monty or something. I mean, or the shell game. I mean, it was really unbelievable. But let's just say that they ended up using this wire. Twisting it into the yeah. cable. Well, but they caught it so late in the game. What they can't take it. They can't t- take it out. What I find really appalling is nobody really ever knew about this. This was kind of hushed up. But luckily, because Roebling was a, a, an amazing engineer, everything that he did for the bridge, it was accounted. The wire needed to be six times its necessary strength. The defective wire is only five times its even strength. with the additional wire wrapped. Well, just, it? no, just the defective wire. So. So they added the additional wire. So it's right. look. I mean, it's a really strong bridge, even if even with the defective wire. Really quickly, because yes. we, we have the one we have one final scandal. <laughs> Those suspenders and everything were being placed on the bridge, and then finally the trusses to create the sort of roadway right. along the way. You know, we're talking like 1881, eleven years into the bridge. Okay, people want the bridge. People have just been looking at it for years. They want the bridge done. Right. Roebling though looks at it and just thinks, you know what? We need to put a little bit more steel reinforcement into those trusses. It needs to be a little bit stronger and stiffer. At this point, everyone's just kind of had it. They're like, Bridge are fatigue. you kidding me? No, we can't. Because so, that'll be expensive too. So, you know, so they even, tr- so at this point, they tried to oust Roebling the, with the backing of the mayor of New York, William Grace, and the mayor of Brooklyn, Seth Lowe. They all attempted to boot him, to get fire him, or to have him step down as, as chief engineer. Did he get kicked out? Luckily, he had enough supporters on the board that he, they, were, they were outnumbered and he got to keep his job. By the way, Roebling was right, because what he sort of foresaw and others didn't, I mean, no one knew what the automobile was at this time, but thankfully, right. because of these Roebling steel trusses, the Brooklyn Bridge didn't really need any additional structural adjustments for at least 50 years after it was built because of this foresight that he had. Let's zoom ahead, please, to opening day, Just which was May 24th, finished. The bridge 1883. Finished. The thing is done, okay. finally, and they, New York City throws a lavish, grandiose festivity for the affair. Tell, they tell not, me about it. Yeah, well, I've, schools, heard, I've heard all about this it. This is kind of, crazy. A, kind of interesting. Schools were closed in Brooklyn uh, for the full day. Schools, however, in Manhattan were only half a day. <laughs> Well, this it's, is it's just, like the budget, you know. It's it, it we only sense. paid for a certain amount of it, so you're only getting a certain amount of days off. Yeah, there were firework displays and parades and such. The president was there, Ch- Chester Arthur, and his entire cabinet. By the way, I heard that the first ceremonial person to cross the bridge, if I'm not mistaken, was Emily Roebling in oh. a, a little carriage. And this is the funniest part: she was carrying a rooster. So Emily, Emily Roebling, Excuse and me? a rooster were like. 
she was the first ceremonial person to cross the bridge. The rooster represented victory. It was one of these old-fashioned oh. like symbols. So she had a rooster in hand, and she crossed it. So I just I think it's a nice touch that Emily was the first ceremonial per- first person, and the rooster the first ceremonial oh, animal. Foul, yes, F- exactly. Fouled it up. Well, so that was the opening day, and then everything was happy. Yeah, almost. One week later. Now, keep in mind that people have never seen anything this big before and maybe have a little fear of it. And so what happened is about a week later, there was a scare on the bridge and a woman screamed. Somebody thought that the bridge was collapsing. So there was a huge stampede and people were closed in on a stairway. And so there was like hundreds of people like trying to get out of there and people were crushed. Over 35 people were injured. 12 people were killed in this mad dash to get off the bridge, which of course wasn't collapsing. So to bring back a little bit of confidence, because that's scary. And by the way, we should mention that those deaths you should add on tw- at least 20 more it was about 20 people who died in the, in, the, in, the, in the total construction of the bridge to bring the confidence back to the bridge we have to t- bring pt barnum into the story you got pt it uh, isn't uh, a story <laughs> in the late 19th century in new york without pt barnum in 1884 pt and 21 elephants well, I don't know if P.T. Barnum was actually with them, but 21, ele- was was. In the front. 21 elephants crossed the bridge all at once. Yeah. And this it was restores sort of- my confidence just well, imagining. And we should also note then, of course, that over the years in the 1940s and throughout the 20th century, there would be you know modifications to the design, especially around the anchorages and the entrance and exits uh, for the FDR and the BQE, but it would still remain, really, John Roebling's bridge. And probably the biggest thing that the bridge did was bring truly bring New York City and Brooklyn together, because within just a few years, 1898, as a matter of fact, was the consolidation of the city and when Brooklyn became New York City. So and a lot of people attribute that, the bridge, to creating that sort of like closeness. Sense of unity. So... We're happy we've made it to the other side. <laughs> we're on the other side of the bridge, and we're glad that you've come along with us, and we hope you made it the whole way and didn't jump off midpoint. <laughs> if um, you did, we won't hold it against you. And we should just take a second to mention that we have made a New Year's resolution, yes, haven't we, Greg? We have. We are going to, we're trying to make our podcast sound better. I mean, I, w- I hope that our information is entertaining and informative. Our actual sound quality is hopefully going to improve in the next in the few coming weeks. We're playing around with a couple different podcast uh, software programs. So and if, equipment, yes. And equipment. If you have any comments about that or about the sound quality, please send us an email because... We are we actively trying to, to... Get some uh, feedback. Yes, so we want to sound as great as New York is as a place. And it's a new year. Let's have a new sound. Exactly. So, and really quickly, you know, it's on a podcast, if I don't rem- remind you about our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. So we'll have another great episode next week. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week. Bye.